On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we're going to continue our apologetic series by trying to prove that our Lord was God himself. Many have claimed throughout history that perhaps he was a very smart man, he was a very holy man, but not God. Others claim that he was a complete fraud. He really existed, but he was not at all who he claimed to be. Still others say that these are all just fantastical stories created by fanatical followers after he died. So we'll take a look. Do any of these hold merit, or can we prove that he was who he said he was? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a small one-time or recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Daniel Thiemann for episode 12 of our apologetic series. Welcome to our next episode on the apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and welcoming for the first time on any of our podcasts, any of our series, we could say this is your global debut. Father Thiemann, hello, how are you? Good, Andrew, how are you? Very good. I was actually just thinking, I think this is maybe the first time you and I have talked since you were the chaplain of the St. Mary's Kansas radio station back yes. in the day. What year yes. was that? A long time. It is true. It is true. Boy, those, my life was a lot simpler back then, Andrew. I miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I bet. I bet. So what have you been up to uh, since then? For people who don't know who Father Thieman is, could you give kind of the bullet points of what you've been up to, Father. Sure, sure. So so I, I first met you when I was uh, first uh, newly ordained and stationed in St. Mary's, uh, where I was uh, teaching in the in the high school, first of all, and then uh, also teaching in, in St. Mary's College for a couple of years, which was uh, very, very enjoyable. If I can ever get back to doing that again, I, I certainly would be very happy. Um, and then after that, I was transferred to St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, which was still in Winona, at that time, and I taught there for three years. And then after that, I was transferred to Australia to be the, the rector of Holy Cross Seminary in Goulburn. So I did that for five years. And then uh, in 2020, I was made the district superior of Australia and New Zealand. So that required me to uh, get in the car and drive about two hours down the highway to Sydney. and. Uh, so, yeah, so for uh, almost three years now, I've uh, been District Superior of Australia and New Zealand. Fantastic. Well, Father, thanks for joining us. I know you're uh, very busy, so thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, yeah. work with us on, on this episode. And uh, for another one, it sounds like coming up as well. We were talking with Father Palco, another of our priests who's down in Australia, uh, just last episode about miracles. We've been talking about the veracity of scripture. We've been talking about the Bible. We've been talking about the prophecies of our Lord. This is really the first episode where we're going to dive in and make the case that our Lord Jesus Christ was who he says he was, and that is God himself. Where do we start with this discussion, Father? Well, I think it's, it's obviously our intention to, to, to prove as much as we can that, that our Lord is exactly who he says he is, that he is both God and man. Um, but just, a, I would say, a few, a few considerations just to begin to, to make sure that we don't try to prove it in the wrong way or, or try to prove more than, we, more than we really can. So we're not going to, in fact, try to directly prove that our Lord is divine. 
which might at first come as a shock to someone to hear me say that, but it, it's just a fact if you think about it. We would also say that we believe by our, our virtue of faith, by our supernatural virtue of faith, that our Lord is divine. Everyone understands that. Um, once we understand that, we realize the other side of the coin is that we cannot directly prove that our Lord is divine because it would not be a truth of faith if it could be proved like two equals four. You know, so um, basically the the truths that are revealed by God, as we know, are believed on the word of God with the help of grace. So the divinity of our Lord is, is not the same kind of truth as, uh, for example, the, the existence of God, which, which we can prove directly with human reason alone. Um, so uh, what we believe by faith is not directly seen by the mind, um, you know, with, with human reason being able to, to make a, a rational argument and once that argument has been made and the proof has been demonstrated then the mind really does see that it is that way and it must be that way but precisely faith is as saint paul says the the evidence of things that appear not so it's it's something that we don't see directly with our mind um but but which we believe on on the word of god so i guess that's the first point we just want to clarify that because it is a truth of faith we think about what that means, it's not directly provable uh, by the human reason. That being said, as we also know, the Catholic faith is eminently reasonable. Um, so although the truths revealed by God cannot be directly proven, um, that they're just too high for, for human reason to, to access them so, so directly as, as a truth of, uh, truth of human reason, a philosophy. Um, nevertheless, God wants these truths to be accepted. So he's placed enough evidence around those truths to show that they have been revealed by him, that this is him speaking. And so it's, it's reasonable that we accept them as true. Okay. So, so the bottom line is that the, the truths of revelation can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That would be the way we would, would express that. And once the human mind has seen all of the arguments in favor of it, once the human mind can be satisfied that it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt, then with the help of grace, with the help of the actual grace, the, the human mind steps over the threshold of faith. Um, so that's, that's kind of how it works. So it's not a direct proof, but it is a proof of sorts, a proof that it is, it is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that this should be believed. So we're, we're basically using faith in conjunction with reason when we're talking about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ being, being God. Um, the fact that, that it is a, a matter of faith doesn't mean that reason is going to contradict it. They're going to work hand in hand, but it's not something that we can easily prove like we were able to prove through logic clearly that God exists, that there is a God. We can't do that same thing with our Lord Jesus Christ being God, but we can show that how they're not in contradiction. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that, that reason prepares the ground for the ascent of faith to be reasonable is in fact why the virtue of faith can be a virtue at all, because human beings, you know, we, we were raised to the supernatural level, but we're still human beings. And what is good for a human being is to be reasonable because that's that's the nature of, of man too. It's as a rational as a rational animal, 
the good, the human good is to, is to act in a reasonable way. And so the, the role that reason plays in, in preparing for that act of faith is what actually allows faith to be a virtue and, and for that act of faith to, to be something good. What are we going to be looking at when we're looking at evidence? What sorts of evidence are we going to be looking at during this discussion, Father? So we're going to be looking at historical evidence, first of all. So uh, I would say the revelation is a fact of history. So there, there is a moment in time when, when God uh, comes down to earth and he speaks to us with a human voice. Um, and that's a fact of history, first of all. So really what we are going to be looking at is the, the, the historical sources uh, for the, the the existence and the, the life and the work and the words of, of Jesus Christ. So it is it is a, a historical uh, journey uh, that that we are going to take, and of course we're going to use our reason to see um, what what those facts of history tell us and what sort of conclusions they should lead us to. But yeah, I think it is important, you know, for for the Catholic revelation is a historical fact. So, so we do begin with, with history and, um, yeah, and, and the Catholic, I would say what sets the Catholic apart from, from a lot of other, uh, religious devotees, uh, who believe in a, in a kind of revelation is that it, it really is rooted in history for the Catholics, that, that there is a moment in time when God comes to earth and he speaks and the, the record we have of that time uh, is, is so clear that for the Catholic, it's not just a fact of, well, you know, I know what I believe, I'm a believer, I know what I believe, but uh, I also know that the grounds I have for my belief should be enough to satisfy anyone who really has that uh, accessibility, that awareness of what has happened in history. Everyone should be satisfied. Right. And we've talked in, in previous episodes, and there are plenty of books available as well, that the fact that Christ existed and that he did the things that Catholics claim that he did, they are supported by history, they're supported by fact. Um, and in fact, even scriptures talk about other religions, other events, other things that are taking place from a historical background that really solidify that. We've seen that in uh, in previous episodes with Father Ruder as well. Um, but that really just kind of hammers home the point that what Christ was saying in the, in the gospels, the things that were said do stand up to historical scrutiny. That's right. And, and I would say that that is a, that is a process one has to go through before, before discussing um, the, the proofs as we're going to do of, of our Lord's claims. We, we do have to, first of all, establish that the, the historical record that we have for the words and actions of our Lord um, and, and the historical record is primarily going to be the New Testament. I mean, that's the primary uh, historical source. So one does have to sort of set up that, well, those historical sources, um, the, the scriptures, they, they are reliable uh, from a historical point of view. That has to be done uh, in advance. Although I think, in fact, just to clarify, some people would think that before we can use the Gospels as a, as a, as a source of information about our Lord and, and what he really did and what he really said, we, we have to accept the New Testament as being inspired by God. And while we do, obviously, accept the New Testament as inspired by God, uh, it's important to realize that 
you, you don't actually have to believe it's inspired to use it as a historical source. You, you can simply subject the, the New Testament to, you know, to all of the tests you would subject any other historical document. And once it is seen as, as reliable, well, then you can start using it right there. You, know, you don't need to prove it's inspired. Sure. You just have to prove it's reliable. Okay. So then let's start to dive into some of the claims that our Lord Jesus Christ made um, about himself. What is the first claim that we'd like to look at today, Father? Sure. Um, so the first claim that our Lord made is that he is, he is sent by God. So he's a, he's a divinely appointed teacher um, of, of the truths of God. And I would say that's, that's the first claim he makes chronologically. And it's also the first claim he makes just from a logical point of view, because he's going to have a lot of things to tell us. Obviously, he's going to have a lot of revelations to give, the fullness of revelation. And in order to establish his credibility, he has to first claim that he is sent by God to, to tell us these things. So even, even logically, he's going to claim that first, and then he's going to deliver uh, over the course of, of three years, as we know. The, the body of, of revelation and and one of one of those truths is is going to be his real identity who he is that's one of the things he's going to reveal that he has to start by simply claiming uh, that he is sent by God to teach the truth to the human race okay so when does he when is he making those those points I mean does he come right out and say I'm sent by God uh, more or less more or less so um there's there's there, there's a number of quotes that we can we can cite from from the from the New Testament from the Gospels where he pretty much does say precisely that. So he's going to um, say in the, in the Gospel of Saint Matthew chapter chapter thirteen um, this this line which has become kind of proverbial uh, in our everyday language that a prophet is is not without honor uh, except in his own country, so in his own house. So a prophet is not welcome or However, we would sort of use that in, in conventional English uh, that comes from our Lord. So he's claiming to be a prophet and he's pointing out that when he goes back to, to Nazareth, he's, he's not accepted, but he is a prophet and he is accepted as such uh, outside of his sort of domestic circle. So, so yes, in Matthew chapter 13 and, and, and Mark chapter six, he's going to point that out. Um, and then in, in the gospel of St. John, he's, he's even more explicit. So, uh, Chapter seven, uh, he'll say, uh, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And then later on, you know, I've come not of myself, but he who sent me is true, um, who you do know not, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And then in chapter eight, again, of St. John, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would indeed love me. For from God, I proceeded and I came. I came not of myself, but he sent me. It's very, very direct there. Um, and then in John chapter 12, it's the same thing. So I've not spoken of myself, but the father who sent me, he gave me commandment of what I should say uh, and uh, what I should speak. Uh, and then finally, in the uh, St. John has a lot. So in the, the 18th chapter, he says, for this I was born. We know this because this is part of the, the passion of our Lord. We just had this a few weeks ago um, in, our, in our Holy Week. Good Friday, Palm Sunday, and as we're going through the Passion, uh, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Um, everyone that's of the truth hears my voice. So is he, when he's saying these things, is he 
again, kind of chronologically and also logically, he's making these statements first that he is, he's not yet making the claim, although maybe by the time we get to John chapter 18, he obviously is, but, um, but he's, he's first logically making the claim I'm sent by God. This is a special mission that I have. And so is he sort of setting himself up at this point in on the same level of like St. John the Baptist or some of the other prophets, or is he doing something to make himself? No, no, that's, um, that's a good point. So in fact, our Lord is going to, he's not only going to say, I'm a prophet, I'm, I'm a teacher sent by God, but he's in fact going to claim that he's in a special category. So he is, he has a certain eminence uh, amongst those who have been sent by God. Um, he has a, yes, he, he's in a privileged place. So he's not, he's like the others in as much as yes, he comes from God with a message for man, but in fact, he's, he's above the others. So, so the, for example, when he's talking about the, he talks about the men of Nineveh who did penance uh, at the preaching of Jonas. And he says, well, yes, but, but a greater than Jonas is, is here. Um, and the queen of the South, she came to hear the words of, of Solomon, but one greater than Solomon is here, which would have been very striking for the Jewish audience because obviously Solomon, even today, the wisdom of Solomon is, is proverbial. And, and he was, you know, gifted by God. Know from Scripture, from the Old Testament, especially gifted from God uh, with wisdom. So, so no, he, he when he does compare himself to to others, he he clearly puts himself in the ascendancy, and and even the fact, honestly, Andrew, the fact that he you know he, he sends forth his disciples to teach all nations, um, you know, baptizing them, teaching them what what I've commanded you, and no one else did that. No, no other teacher from God, you know, claimed that he had a you know, a mandate to, to send his message to the world and commission people to, to carry his message to the ends of the earth. So, no, it is unique. And he, he, he claims that. So these are things that he has said, and I'm putting on my skeptic hat for a second here, and I'm going to say, well, sure, anyone can say that. Uh, he okay. said these things. Great. Um, prove it. Prove that what he said is, no. is actually true. And that's good. That That's that's an entirely reasonable and human reaction. We, we, we don't actually want, you know, people to, to be gullible and, and to, I would say, to, to value truth about God so lightly that they, they just follow anybody who comes along with the message. So I think that's the stereotypical uh, view of, of people who don't see themselves as religious, that, that they're, in fact, much more they're much more reasonable about these things because they're not skeptical. They're not sort of going around, you know, chasing whatever, um, you know, uh, religious feeling might well up in their, in their heart on a given day. So no, that's exactly right. We, we, we do want people to have a certain healthy skepticism when someone comes along and says, Oh, I, I'm a messenger from God. Well, anybody <laughs> can say that. And, and many have. Sure. So, so no, that's, that's exactly right. So obviously I would say, well, not I mean obviously, but let's just point out first of all that there are some signs which would clearly show that someone is not a messenger from God, and and I think part of the process of uh, preparing for the the real act of faith, which is a reasonable act, is is to to sort out and uh, what what can't be from God, because again, that's that is going to be a reasonable process. So if the message that the person comes to deliver, for example. If, if it has errors in it, if, if it has mistakes in it, um, well, that's, that's not from God. God wouldn't be delivering a message like that. 
if if part of the message is you know against the natural law you know so the the morality that a human that any human person can can discover uh, by their natural reason and yet this person is saying that it's okay to do something that I, I know is, is wrong by the natural law so that would be a sign um, in the message itself it's defective so the message can't come from God or the messenger could be in a way defective they could be uh, dishonest they could be immoral in their own behavior and that would that would be a, a clue that okay well I'm not, I'm not sure about this person over here so there are what we might call negative criteria so th- those criteria don't don't indicate for sure that a person is from God but they do help us to screen out a lot of people who, who clearly who clearly aren't but I just I just mentioned that because it, it is it helps to emphasize the fact that this is a reasonable process and we can already mm-hmm. sort of exclude some people. Um, but in terms of what actually does point out that this person is sent from God, um, well, they have to have credentials that could only come from God. Uh, that's that's really the point. So God has to give them some sort of credentials um, that that would be clear. And, and, and this would really involve some acts of divine power. So, so this person is, is able to do things with the help of God that God would not be helping him to do uh, if God wasn't trying to point him out and say, no, this, this is my messenger, and, and listen to what he has to say. So. And these types of criteria, looking at the message itself and then looking at the messenger um, you know, moving ahead a few hundred years, this is something that the Catholic Church does all the time when looking at uh, private revelations, apparitions, things like that, they're going to be looking at these types of negative criteria and, and investigating the pers- the people quite quite strongly. Um, Padre Pio even was essentially shuttered away and told not to do anything while the church investigated him. So this is this is a common, pretty standard practice, and the church is applying it even to our Lord Himself. That's that's absolutely true. Yep, that's it. That's okay. It. So signs from God, credentials from God, he's not going to have a laminated card that says, here, I'm God. So what right. are these credentials you're talking about, Father? So, so these, these, these acts of divine power, these are either going to be miracles or, or prophecies. And uh, I noticed there was a separate podcast on, on miracles, which was very well done. Uh, so I uh, don't need to cover all that ground. But, but basically, yeah, these, uh, these things that can only be done by divine power or which come from God's knowledge. That, that is proper to him. So yeah, miracles and, and prophecies. And, and these are the signs uh, that, that this person, yes, this person is from God. And, and they even uh, the, the, the Jews of our Lord's time, they, they, they saw it that way. They, they even said of our Lord, you know, when the Messiah comes, is, is, is he going to do more signs than this man does? I mean, that's, 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 they, they, they saw the mm-hmm. significance um, of what our Lord was doing. Is there... Again, putting on the skeptic hat, are are there going to be people who are going to be looking at the person of Christ throughout this period of time? You know, contemporaries of Christ, um, historians, writers, are they going to? I think you mentioned it a little bit already. The the Jews are going to see some of the miracles and say, "Hey, this is this is a real deal." Are there more examples of that that you could give, Father, where people from that time or from closely afterwards are going to say, "Yeah, this was this was legitimate." Well. Yes. So what's interesting is the, so the, the enemies of Christianity in the early, early centuries after our Lord. So they will try to explain away 
the uh, what what Jesus of Nazareth was was doing. Um, and it's interesting what they don't try to do. Actually, they don't actually attack the historical reliability of the Gospels, which is which is already quite telling mm. uh, from that from that other question point of view about their historical reliability. When the enemies of our Lord were were trying to explain away uh, him and and his movement. The easiest thing to do would be to say, well, uh, that's all, that's all, that's not reliable. You know, that was made up and, and whatever. And we don't really know, but they didn't, they didn't. It was, um, it was something that they understood couldn't really be attacked. And, and so the, the things that our Lord said and did, in particular, what he did with the, the miracles and the prophecies, they, they couldn't be denied. Um, so they would come up with other, other alternative explanations. So he was, it was magic or, or something like that, which uh, you know, is not, not a very serious explanation. But it, it is serious in the sense that the fact that they came up with that, that expediency to say it was magic or whatever um, shows that they couldn't deny the facts. These, these things had happened. The fact that there was a disinformation campaign happening that quickly means that there was probably something there. That's it. Um, I'm looking at some of the notes that you passed along to me ahead of time, Father, and you have a point here. The evangelical miracles are nothing like the miracles described in the Apocrypha. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that, that's kind of a supporting point. So, you know, the Gospels themselves, they, 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 they deal with, I mean, if you go through the trouble of comparing the different Gospels, you'll see there's, there's at least 40 that are mentioned specifically, and then others that are mentioned uh, in general terms, like, you know, many came to him and he healed them all, or people came possessed with devils. And you sort of have the sense that, you know, throughout the whole afternoon, people were coming to him in, in search of cures or deliverance from, from devils, and he was doing that. So aside from the 40 individual ones that are documented, you have these sort of general explanations that he was doing this regularly. Um, but what's interesting with your question there is, is, you know, we do have these apocrypha, these other writings from the from the first centuries of a christian of the christian era after our lord which purported to be uh scriptural so you know these various epistles and gospels of so and so and so and so and you know they're they're very much a mixed bag that they're not inspired okay so they're not scriptural which is why we call them apocrypha they're very much a mixed bag some of them are are, are clearly heretical you know, certainly uh, Gnostic or, or Manichaean or whatever. Um, some of them are, are orthodox enough in, in terms of what they say, um, more like, you know, pious literature, I would say. But in some of these, Apocrypha, you have our Lord uh, described as working certain miracles during his childhood. And St. Thomas Aquinas says he, he didn't do that because precisely his his miracles were meant to be a sign of his of his mission to teach. So it wasn't until he began his public life that he actually started doing that. But in any case, you can understand uh, people would be very curious um, and would be very interested in reading, you know, the, the secret life of our Lord growing up. They would be very edifying and inspiring and all that. And, and people did write about this sort of thing. And so there are miracles um, from his childhood in, in these apocrypha and they're you know they're 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 entertaining. I mean they're entertaining, I suppose, but uh, but they're not. Uh, yeah, they're not very serious. So you know, our Lord he, he he goes to the well. You know, Mary sends him to the well to get water. 
he, he breaks the pitcher, you know, uh, oh, darn it, I broke the pitcher. Uh, and, and what was I thinking? I didn't know that rock was there. I tripped over it. Ah, what was I thinking? Um, and so, uh, you know, he's like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll just work a miracle, you know? So he takes his cloak yeah. and he puts the water in his cloak and he carries it back like that, you know, to his mother. And it's, it's entertaining. It's not, it's not very serious. Um, you know, the, the, the boys next door, they're, they're interrupting his game. And so he just said, uh, no, strike you dead. You know, I've, I've warned you it's over. You're annoying. It's over, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not serious, you know, it, it's right. not serious. So, um, okay. Yeah. So the, these, these ideas, it, it's childish. It doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't have a purpose. It's, it's right. something that would be either, I mean, in that last example, right? Striking the, the children dead. Um, that's, that's really not something the good God would do, uh, just because someone got on their nerves. That's, that's actually, a, that would be an imperfection in Christ. Even breaking the picture, that would have been an imperfection on the, on the sort of right. the, the physical level. Um, so they're, they're not serious. They, they don't show anything. They are, they're written for a popular audience so that people will read their book. It's yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's kind of like the, the magazines at the checkout counter, right? It's that's it. That's come it. see that, you know, um, the, the miracle makes birds out of dirt <laughs> and this sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So the real thing is of a very different kind than the, the imitation. Sure. Um, there's often, especially nowadays, there there seems to be this caricature made of our Lord and his message that he was, um, I, I saw someone post recently, our Lord was the first social justice warrior, um, or that, you know, his his message was more about, yeah, social justice or philanthropy or things like that. It, is there any weight to reading the miracles, reading the works and the and the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ in this way? Uh, did the did the followers of Jesus just kind of make up these miracles afterwards, and just to kind of support this claim? Well, that's interesting because you know whenever you have a, a great figure in history, everybody wants to sort of adopt that figure yeah. to support their their agenda or their own well whatever their own philosophy of life or whatever. So you know you can. You can see how many different theories are about William Shakespeare and who he really was and what he really thought, whatever. So it's normal that people would, would try to would try to adopt our Lord to as the first spokesman um, for their particular agenda, um, or at the same time just sort of dismiss him as you know just another just an exaggerated um, a picture of a religious leader which has become exaggerated. But when you boil it down, you know, he was, he was just preaching a very simple, a simple message, um, which of course they have their idea what that message is, but, but it, it's interesting. Yes. The, the miracles that our Lord does, they, they are connected to his message. So they're, they're, they're woven in. So if our Lord, for example, is, is come to, to heal our souls. Well, one sort of sign of that would be to heal our bodies. Um, mm. And of course, before he would heal their bodies, he would demand an act of faith. He says, well, do you believe that I am who I am or, or don't you? And if you do have faith, then I can heal your body. And if you do have faith, I can heal your soul. Um, so there is there is a symbolism there, um, restoring sight to the blind, you know, so they can, they can really see. So 
all those preachers who like to quote, um, I, I am among them, the, the word of the blind man, Lord, that I may see. I mean, how many spiritual applications, you know, does that have? Um, the, the delivering people from the devil, obviously that's, that's very symbolic because he does come to redeem the world, um, and, and to defeat, to defeat Satan in his, in his desire to, to control the, the destinies of, of men. And so he shows, well, I, I have power over Satan. So there is, there is a, a doctrinal, aside from the fact that he uses the miracles to authenticate his message, they often have a, a direct doctrinal significance. Our Lord will, uh, he'll walk on water uh, just before promising the Holy Eucharist. So to show that his body is not subject to all the limitations of other bodies. And, and then he'll, 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 he'll introduce the question of the Eucharist. Um, so there is that. Um, but in, in, a, in a way, I would say also they, just again, to contrast them with the Apocrypha, the way the miracles are done are done in a virtuous way. So our Lord comes to teach us the way of virtue and, and his miracles will be acts of charity. They will be done with great modesty, uh, in, in not, not in any way in a sort of arrogant, sort of showy, sort of spiteful sort of way. So even the way they're done is, is done in a virtuous way that he wants us also to, to imitate. And there's that there's that passage from scripture where Herod wants him to perform miracles like it's some sort of party trick, and he's not going to do that. He doesn't do that for that reason. Exactly, and, and he won't throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, um, as as Satan suggested, uh, which in a certain way would have been quite the dramatic entrance to his public life. I mean, they <laughs> could have even been somehow justified as a way to well, and this will be a great way to get the attention of the audience that you want to have, but it would have been too showy. And, and so he mm -hmm. doesn't even do that, even though it maybe could have been made to work. You know? um, there's a point in your notes where you're talking about how the, the miracles are essential to understanding the entire gospel narrative that without the miracles, the gospel makes no sense. Uh, what do you mean by that father? So, this is, is sort of a point that has escaped, uh, I think, a lot of modern critics. And when I say modern, I would say from the late 1700s, from the, from the Enlightenment uh, onwards, because people do, again, our Lord is this great figure from history. Um, he, he's, he must have been quite an exceptional character of some sort. Um, but because of my personal you know, philosophical bias as a, as a rationalist, as an agnostic or whatever, I, I can't accept the miracles. Okay. So I'm, I'm willing to accept that Jesus was a great man and that he had, he had a lot to teach us and this sort of thing, but I'm going to try to, to pull out those miracles and, and sort of get back to the, the real uh, historical Jesus and the message that he really proclaimed. And it's interesting as you, as you try to do that, as you pull the miracles out of the story, the, the gospel story doesn't make any sense uh, anymore. So, so for example, our, our Lord will raise Lazarus from the dead. That was, that was a, a miracle that created more of a sensation than, than many other miracles. Um, Lazarus was a prominent man. He'd been dead and buried. Everyone knew he'd been dead and buried. Our Lord comes and raises him from the dead. 
and his enemies are there. So not just the friends of our Lord, but the enemies of our Lord are there. And it creates this great popular uh, excitement um, over, over our Lord. And that leads to the popular uh, acclamation of our Lord on Palm Sunday. So the, the two things are, are very closely related. That popular enthusiasm uh, is, is the direct result of that miracle. That popular enthusiasm is what, after all the other efforts that the Pharisees and the high priests have made to discredit our Lord, to, to shut down his movement, here it is, after all of those efforts, as they say, we, we've achieved nothing. All of our efforts avail nothing. He, he has to die. We have to kill him. Um, so those three things are, are linked. Um, one of the, the big arguments that, that our Lord had with the Pharisees, one of the big points of dispute, were, was this question of a Sabbath day, uh, working on the Sabbath day. And it's because our Lord is working miracles on the Sabbath day that this controversy even breaks out. So it's, it's very difficult for the narrative to make sense when you try to tease the, the, the miracles out. And, and even the fact that our Lord had such a following. What, why? Why did he have such a following when the, you know, the, the recognized religious authorities of the day, um, especially the Pharisees who are very highly regarded for the, for the apparent seriousness that they, that they, that they took uh, the law and adding all of these other practices and whatever. And they couldn't stop him. They couldn't stop him. They, they were clearly trying to warn everyone against this rabbi and they could not stop him. So what did our Lord possibly have to, to counter, to counteract the, the arguments that the Pharisees were making against him? Well, he could work miracles and they couldn't. It's, it's the only way to explain even the enthusiasm he was able to maintain and the disciples he was able to make uh, despite the opposition of the recognized authorities of the day. Oh, it's fascinating. It's, um, it's similar to, um, I was listening to uh, an, another podcast and they were talking about how, you know, the, the cure of the deaf and the blind man, even the Pharisees questioned him afterwards and he was scared to talk to the yeah. Pharisees about it, it because he was afraid he was going to get essentially excommunicated in the terms That's of the right. day. Um, but he had to tell the truth and they, again, were powerless to stop what was happening. No, that's, and even in that particular example, the, the parents of the young man, they were questioned and they said, well, mm. he, he's old enough to answer for himself. Ask him because, because they didn't want to get into trouble with the, um, with the authorities. So no, it doesn't, the story doesn't work if you take the miracles out. So I remember this was an example I, I gave in a class, you know, one time trying to illustrate this point. And of course, the students, you know, they like the Lord of the Rings and this sort of thing. So I said, well, if trying to understand the Gospels without the miracles, you know, trying to understand that story of Jesus Christ without the miracles is like trying to understand the Lord of the Rings without the ring. Uh, quite honestly, it's, it's a good uh, it's a good parallel, you know. So, you know, if you have this great uh, Sauron, this great evil being who, who sends his, you know, his his, uh, his chief lieutenants, the, the Nazgul, and he, he sends them all the way across Middle Earth in, in, in search of this, you know, three foot tall, pipe smoking, ale drinking, nobody. Um, <laughs> why? 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 Why was Sauron the Great so interested in this, you know, this nobody? And, you know, why, why this fellowship of the ring to uh, 
all the great heroes of Middle Earth, you know, the, the elves, the dwarves, the, the kings of men, they're all represented. And, and their, their purpose is, is not to guard Aragorn or, or Legolas or any of those great heroes. They're all there to guard this hobbit, this nobody, you know? And, and, and Sam and, and Frodo eventually, they, they, they go off into the land of Mordor. They risk all of these perils on this apparently hopeless task for, for, for no reason at all. No, yeah. No. So if there's no ring, the story doesn't make any sense. And if there's no miracles, the gospel doesn't make any sense. That's a great parallel. That's, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but it's, it's perfect. Um, all right. Another, another controversy or another, I guess, objection to the fact that our Lord's uh, life was, was divine was that his miracles, they actually weren't really that miraculous. The people at the time just didn't really understand them. Our Lord was maybe just a lot more intelligent than other people. He was a really good EMT first aid guy and he was able to heal people. And we just, you know, people at the time didn't understand it because they were dumb fishermen back in Galilee. What do you say to that father? So this, it's good that you asked this because it, I think for our understanding of miracles and to speak about them in an intelligent way, it is important to distinguish the event itself, what, what we call the historical truth uh, of the miracle. I noticed we had a, a podcast about uh, the, the question of miracles, and Father Palco did a very good job of, of explaining the, the historical truth, which is that the event really did happen. And then what's called the philosophical truth, which is now what, what you're asking about, that, okay, the event happened, but was it actually miraculous? Does it, does it defy any other natural explanation? And that's what we call the philosophical truth. Uh, of the miracle. So, yeah, so uh, there's a few points here to, to demonstrate that, that these are true miracles. Um, the first point we can just sort of make obviously is that, well, uh, it would be just as miraculous to suppose that uh, a carpenter from Nazareth um, was, despite all uh, historical context, was somehow privy to, you know, 21st century or some cases, you know, 25th century uh, of medical medical knowledge, uh, that would be just as, as miraculous. So um, I think that's sort of a good initial comment. But at the end of the day, the, the miracles that our Lord works, there's such a variety of them. So he doesn't, he doesn't perform them in very carefully controlled uh, laboratory uh, environment where we could maybe suppose that, okay, he... He only worked certain kind of miracles in certain very specific laboratory circumstances. So therefore, uh, it sounds like maybe he had some sort of medical knowledge or some sort of secret knowledge. No, he, he works these miracles in every possible circumstance. And he, he works them uh, in public. He works them in private. He works them in front of his friends. Uh, and he works them in front of his enemies. He, he works them in front of, of, of the skeptical, the people who are undecided. Um, he, he works them on people. He works them on nature, you know, in terms of the calming of the storm or the multiplication of the bread. Uh, he works them on devils. Um, so it's, it's as far-fetched as it would be to imagine that these miracles could have been worked by, by natural means. The circumstances, I would say, they, they completely exclude that possibility because you know, people walk up to our Lord on the spur of the moment. Um, and right there in front of the crowd, hostile as well as sympathetic, 
he works in Oracle. Oh. Um, yeah, it's not like he was doing sleight of hand and there was a black backdrop in front of everyone. <laughs> the apostles are hustling and, in with a table and, and a black backdrop. In advance, you know, come on Tuesday morning right. and the great worker, <laughs> you know, miracle worker from Galilee will, will have everything sorted and you can see what he can do. No, there was none of that preparation, none of those favorable circumstances, and, and none of this sort of, you know, secret witnesses like, well, I was there. Uh, I know nobody else saw it, but I was there and you can take my word for it. It wasn't like that at all. And, and again, we see that from the fact that the enemies of Christianity in the first centuries made no attempt to, to deny the historical uh, truth of the miracle. Um, and their only explanation for how it could have been done philosophically was, was by magic which, I mean, to a modern audience, is not a particularly uh, significant rebuttal. Right. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the fact that these miracles were doctrinal in nature. They had some significance to them. They weren't just party tricks. Um, did our Lord refer back to them? He's not just doing the miracles off to the side, just as kind of a sideshow or just like, hey, look, I'm real. And then preaching. Is he going to refer back to them and, and, and use them as his own proof in a certain way? Yes. So in fact, so this is actually what we call the, the relevant truth of a miracle. So, okay, someone did this, this event happened. It was miraculous. But what are we meant to take away from the fact that this miraculous event happened? So what, what was the purpose of it? Was it to authenticate, as we would say it was, was it to authenticate the, the mission of this person? to show that they were truly sent from God, or does it have some other significance? So that's what we call the relevant truth. And again, Father Palco explained that well uh, in his podcast. So our Lord does specifically point out that, that these are worked for the, uh, the authentication of his, of his mission. Uh, so for example, there's the, um, there's that famous example where the uh, Matthew chapter nine, where the, uh, the man is let down from the roof, you know, uh, and mm. he says, you know, take up thy bed and, and, and go. And, but he specifically says that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Cause first he says, thy sins are forgiven thee. And people say, well, he blasphemes who can forgive sins by God alone. And he says, all right, that you may know that the son of man has power to forgive sins. I say to you, arise and walk. Which, which interestingly enough, although it's not so meaning, so we can even understand in our own day that our Lord is making this, he's, he's working this miracle as a direct proof of a doctrinal statement he's just made that I have the power to forgive sins. But what perhaps is a little bit lost on us in our, in the modern times is how significant that sign would have been specifically to a Jewish audience, because it was very much the, the general opinion of the Jews of that time that physical ailment, physical sickness or whatever, was a direct punishment from God for a specific sin. Right? So we, uh, we see that in, in that example that you gave earlier about the, the young man who was, who was blind, um, when they asked, you know, well, who has sinned, this man or, or his parents? Because Somebody must have sinned uh, if he's right. So for a Jewish audience that day in that house, seeing this man sick of the palsy, they would have assumed that he had committed some terrible sin. And that's why he is this way. And 
So for that audience, our Lord's healing of the man would only make sense if the sin had been forgiven. So it even has, for that audience, a very clear signification that the sins must have been absolved or God would never have permitted this man to have been freed from, from his palsy. So no, he, he does make that point. You know, when the disciples of John the Baptist came uh, and, and said, you know, well, you can sense and, and who do you make yourself out to be? And he, and he says, well, go tell John, go tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. You know, the, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and, and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not scandalized in me. So just tell him what you have seen uh, and that obviously this is meant to, to verify my mission. Um, and, and when the controversy was at its, I would say its last stages in, in the gospel of St. John and, and like those chapters, those later chapters of St. John, chapters 10, uh, chapters 11, he, he makes the, he makes the point that if you don't believe me, you know, the Pharisees were obviously very antagonistic. They, they had their own theory about who the Messiah would be, and our Lord did not fit that theory. And he says, look, if, if you don't believe me, believe the works. You know, the mm -hmm. works that I do give testimony of me. If you don't believe me, believe the works. So from, from all of the events that he's doing, all the miracles that he's doing, and combining that with the words that he's saying, and we're going to be speaking about prophecies here in just a second, but all of these things put together, he's, he's making a cohesive picture of who he is, both for the audience of the time and for us today. That's it. That's it. So he's, he's, working, he's working signs that only God could do or uh, a, man, a man working with God could do. Those works are done to show not only the, the goodness of God, um, but also the, the goodness of the messenger. You know, they're done in a, in a virtuous way. And, and oftentimes they are not only, they're, they're certainly pointed out as a proof of his mission, but there's even uh, a doctrinal significance. I, again, with the question of the Eucharist, so the, the multiplication of the bread. Okay, of course, that's not the same as the Eucharist, but, but to show that our Lord can do something miraculous with bread does help to dispose the people to think, oh, okay, well, this other doctrine he's going to reveal, well, it's hard to accept. It's true, but he's he's made it easier for us to accept by just working that miracle with bread. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, a little bit off script, but it's it's interesting, you know, even the apostles at the time when our Lord started to announce, I think he was in Capernaum when he announced that he, you know, uh, made the statement that people would need to be saved by eating his bread and drinking his blood. Yeah. The apostles themselves who had seen all of this in person said, Lord, these are hard truths. Yeah. So it makes it makes us feel a little bit better if sometimes there are, yeah, yeah. how is it? You know, I can't really understand this. The apostles themselves had the same doubts. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was hard. So really at the end of the day, you, you say, well, look, this man has, as, as St. Peter said, well, where, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So St. Peter didn't mm -hmm. pretend to understand. He just understood right. that our Lord was, was sent from God. And so, the message from God must be believed. Yeah. Those are the miracles. And we've, let's turn to prophecies just for a minute, Father. We've already talked about prophecies. Father McPherson talked about prophecies about our Lord who were made by Old Testament prophets, etc. 
Um, but our Lord made prophecies himself, right? This is true. Yes. So, so maybe just to just remind ourselves, what, what is a prophecy? So uh, a prophecy is, is, it's a prediction okay, of a, of a future event, um, a contingent event. So, uh, not something that is inevitably going to happen anyway. So something that must happen, but it's contingent. It might or it might not. So there's a prediction of this future contingent event, which cannot be foreseen with certainty, except with, with divine light, with, with supernatural light, with God sharing some of the knowledge that he has as God with the person making the prophecy. So um, due to God's infinite knowledge, he knows what's going to happen, and he can, therefore, share that knowledge with someone who can then make this prediction uh, in order to, to show that, yes, okay, so God is, is working with me. Um, so, of course, our Lord, you know, here we are in, in Easter time, uh, our Lord predicts his passion and his resurrection, which obviously would have been, our Lord was uh, almost killed many, many times, uh, and yet he predicts with 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 very great you know particular details that I'm going to be mocked and scourged and, and spit upon um, and I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles to to be killed and then of course his resurrection so he, he predicts that on the third day he will rise again uh, on Holy Thursday when the the disciples are going into Jerusalem to, to eat the uh, the past the Last Supper um, they say well where where would you like me to prepare the past um, Excuse me, I'm sorry, not, not that, sorry. That's, that's another incident. That's another incident with the question of the, um, you're going to meet this man with the picture, etc. But specifically mm-hmm. with, with Palm Sunday, when they're going in on Palm Sunday, they, they, they go and they get the, uh, the colt that our Lord is going to, to ride in on. And uh, he said, well, you know, I want you to go, I want you to this place, there'll be a colt, and, and loose him and bring him. And they say, well, uh, won't, won't the owner object to that? He says, just tell them that the master has need of him and it'll be fine. Uh, and it was, it was, um, he denies, sorry, he uh, predicts the denial of St. Peter, you know, again, at the question of the, uh, Holy Thursday night, uh, he predicts the descent of the Holy Ghost. Uh, he predicts the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and, and he doesn't predict it as corresponding to the end of the world, which was a very common opinion at the time. Um, the, the temple would last forever, and only when the world ended would the temple be destroyed. He says, "No, the temple's going to be destroyed, and the world will go on." So those are those are prophecies. There's other things that our Lord knew and revealed that He knew, which aren't prophecies in the strict sense because they're not prediction of a future event, but still they are a sign of that that knowledge that He had. So when there's that question of paying the tax. And uh, our Lord says, well, look, we don't want to scandalize anyone here. So I shouldn't really have to pay the tax. But nevertheless, uh, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm the son of, of God and this is a temple tax, it's my house, actually. Uh, but he says to St. Peter, you know, go, go cast your hook into the sea. You're going to bring up a, a fish in the mouth of the fish. You're going to find a stator and you can pay for me and for you with that. Uh, so obviously that's uh, the fact that there was a fish swimming around with a coin in his mouth. Not something anyone would have known. Um, uh, the fact that the Samaritan woman had her, uh, her five husbands, not something he would have known. Uh, the secret of Nathaniel, um, whatever that secret was, we'll find out on the last day when he said, you know, before, uh, before you were called and you were under the fig tree, 
I saw you. So Nathaniel knew the significance of that. Nobody else did, but uh, he knew that as well. And that, that convinced uh, Nathaniel that this man was, was from God. Hmm. So everything that we've been seeing, this is, this is essentially proving the point that our Lord was sent by heaven, by God, to do something, to deliver this message, and the miracles and the message all line up together. That's it. That's it. Um, okay, so we've been looking at our Lord being sent from heaven, like I just said. Um, we haven't really looked at the fact of the matter yet, Father, which I guess is the big point. Right. And did our Lord ever prove, or can he, can we say that we can prove that our Lord was God himself? We've been able to prove here in the last 55 minutes or so, he was sent by heaven. He was given this divine message, but now is he God? No, that's it. So now we have to sort of unpack the message. So he, he is a messenger. His message is divine. It's meant to be believed by, by the whole human race. So what's in that message? What, what are those truths? And, and there's a lot. There's, there's, there's a lot there. There's the institution of the sacraments. There's the institution of the church. Um, there's certain questions of morality and, and all that sort of thing. So it's, uh, there's, there's many things that our Lord will teach. But one of the things he will teach is that I am, in fact, not, not only a teacher of, of eminent authority, but I am, in fact, the, the Son of God uh, himself. Um, and it's interesting. There's actually a couple of quotes where he he sort of links those two ideas. So there'll be there's other quotes where he's quite clear in stating that I am I am the Son of God. But he kind of bridges the two concepts. In fact, so there's the uh, there's the quote in, in Matthew chapter 11, and as well as the same same quote in, in Luke chapter 10, where he says, "All things are delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son but the Father." Neither does anyone know the Father but the Son, and he to whom it shall please the Son to reveal him. So he's talking about what he knows and why he knows it, but then he he begins to tip his hand a bit and say, well, the reason I know it is because I am the Son. Uh, and there's also mm-hmm. the that parable about the, 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 the workers in the vineyard. Um, where the, uh, or sorry, it's not the workers of vineyard, but where the householder, he lends his, he leases his, his vineyard. And those who are in charge of the vineyard don't send the, the fruits like they're supposed to to the owner. And so the owner of the vineyard sends his servants and those servants are the prophets. Uh, that's, that's, that's the, that's the meaning of the, um, of the, of the parable. And so the, the prophets are sent, the servants are sent and those who are workers and, or, Leasing the vineyard, they they treat the uh, the servants, the the prophets, badly, and finally, the owner of the vineyard sends, "I I will send my son, and they will reverence my son." So, the meaning of that parable was clear to, to everyone. Uh, even the Pharisees understood what our Lord was getting at. And what's interesting there is our Lord lays it out chronologically and says, "Well, I am I am the last of those who are sent." And I have a, a greater dignity than all of the others because I am the son. So he joins that concept of his prophet status, his teacher status, and his sonship status. So those are just a couple of interesting quotes from that point of view. But but there's lots of any there's lots of other quotes. So our Lord, we would we would not we would not make the claim that our Lord was divine, 
that he was the son of God, if he hadn't, I mean, if he hasn't, well, then uh, we, we should not either. Uh, but he but he does. So so in Matthew chapter five, um, so this is the Sermon on the Mount. And and our Lord will say, well, you know, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you. So, and, and that's, and, and that, go, that there's that, there's a sort of theme. He, he mentions that a few times. So basically what he's saying is you've heard of old from God on Mount Sinai that you should do this, but I say you should do this. So he's claiming a status equal to the, the lawgiver of the Old Testament, and the lawgiver of the Old Testament was God. So he is claiming to be God. And there's even that parallel. He's, he's giving this, this sermon on, on the Mount, on the Mount of the, of the Beatitudes, as the old law was given on, on Mount Sinai. So it's, it's clear that he's, he is claiming a divine identity if he's going to dare assert that he has the authority to, to improve upon God's own law. Um, yeah. That um, is, that is striking. That's something that I had just learned myself just, just recently about the Sermon on the Mount or just realized that is, you know, we, we think of the Sermon on the Mount as this nice, Hey, here are all these teachings that are great, but he's doing something really important and really striking there. Like you said, he's saying, here's the old law. But I don't want to say he's co-opting the old law, but he's adding to, he's, he's improving it. upon he's the old law. Yeah. 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 And no one but God dare do that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and as we already mentioned, the Sabbath day controversy. So he's, he's working these miracles and it scandalizes uh, the, the Pharisees. Uh, say not, not maybe a real scandal, but us, they, they, they scandalize themselves really. But in any case, um, he will say that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, which is something no one would have ever dared to say, that the Son of Man is, is Lord of, uh, of the Sabbath. So um, that, mm. that he has authority over God's sacred Sabbath, well, only God has authority over the Sabbath. What does it mean, Father? This is something I've always wondered when our Lord sometimes refers to himself as the son of God and sometimes refers to himself as the son of man. Yes. There's yes. gotta be a significance. Yes. So, um, I would say the, the first significance is that he's asserting that he's both human and divine. So he is asserting there is two natures. Um, so the, to say you are the son of man implies that you are a human being. Uh, and in this case, the son of Mary and, you know, therefore descended humanly speaking from David, etc. So, I would say the first significance is he's asserting that he is God and man, but the term son of man is actually a messianic term. So it comes from the book of Daniel. Um, so it, it's a, a messianic title that he's claiming. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is something that, that people at the time would have known. If you hear someone yeah. talking about the son of man, they're speaking about the Messiah who is to come. At, at, least, who is at here. least the educated among them would have known that. Yes. Okay. Um, and then our Lord himself, you know, even beyond making these, so to speak, illusions, he's directly saying, I am God to certain people, at least fairly early on in his ministry, right? Yes. So well, we can point out, for example, when, when St. Peter makes that profession of faith, 
in his divinity. So the, obviously that's a, a very important apologetical text um, for, for Catholics because it, it's the, uh, it comes just before the, the promise of the primacy. So in Matthew chapter 16, um, but just before that, when, when our Lord is saying, well, who do people say that I am? And St. Peter says, well, there's, there's different theories. They say, well, some people say you're Elias. Some people say you're this person, that person. He's okay, fine. That's what everybody else says. But you who are my disciples, those of you who are with me all the time, who do you say that I am? And St. Peter says, oh, you are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and our Lord does not correct St. Peter and say, oh, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, slow down. Don't, no, 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 no. You got this all wrong. He says, no, no, no. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So this, this is a divinely revealed truth and you are making an act of faith in, in the revelation of God. So he praises St. Peter for that. But the, and, and let me just pause here for a second because something that a lot of modernists will, will say, uh, a lot of modernists and rationalists or whatever will say that the, the only times when our Lord claims to be divine come from the Gospel of St. John. And, and there are some amazing quotes along those lines in the Gospel of St. John, which I'll mention. But, but it is important to point out that it's not just in the Gospel of St. John, because people of a modernist or a rationalist bent of mind, they will argue that, that John's Gospel is not meant to be historical. Uh, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... This is, this is some sort of mystical treatise. This is some sort of, you know, personal meditation or something. And so it's, it's not really meant to be historical, um, which is a very weak argument because in fact, if you put the gospels in parallel, you can see where St. John already being aware of the three first gospels is intentionally filling in the picture, uh, with detail. So the historical aspect of it is pretty clear. But in any case, leaving that aside, leaving that aside, um, these other quotes that I've mentioned, these are not from St. John's Gospel. So when our Lord sets himself up as Lord of the Sabbath, as a lawgiver equal to that of the old law, when he praises St. Peter for, uh, for making that act of, of faith in him, um, that's, that's not from St. John. Um, and, and all of those, those scenes in the, in the passion of our Lord, uh, when he's going to, when he's on trial and et cetera. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming in, in the power of God and the clouds of heaven to judge the nations that, that, that salvation is going to depend uh, on, on what you have done to me. You know, um, that's a divine prerogative. So he's, he's making those claims um, to divine status, uh, even outside the, the gospel of St. John. But it is true that some of the most beautiful uh, and striking uh, examples of his making this claim uh, do come from St. John. So, for example, um, you know, John chapter 3, For God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but that the world may be saved by him. He that believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe is already judged because he's not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And John chapter 5, more or less along the same lines. but. But there's some, some obviously really, really striking quotes in John chapter eight, which are the ones that we, we really, really like to, uh, to refer to. Um, so it's my father that glorifies me, of whom you say he's your God. He's my father. He's your God. Um, and you have not known him, but I have known him. Abraham, your father rejoiced, uh, 
to see my day and rejoice to his glad. And, and the Pharisees say, well, you're not, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Like, seriously? Like, and, and they're, mm-hmm. they're saying this to discredit him because our Lord seems to have overreached himself by bringing Abraham right. into the discussion. And our, they're and saying, aha, says, gotcha. Exactly. They're like, ah, okay. And, and our Lord says, well, men and men, I say to you, before Abraham was made, I am. And mm-hmm. that, that obviously is a reference to the, the book of Exodus where, where God speaking to Moses says, I am who am. Um, he who is has sent you. So the Jews understood that perfectly because they, they, they were going to kill him at that point for, for blasphemy. So they understood exactly uh, what he was saying. Um, so That's fascinating. Um, it is, again, a little bit of a side note. I, again, heard this about a year ago or so when I was doing some reading on, on the topic uh, that there were other messiah quote unquote messiahs at this time. Uh, yes. They were sort of a dime a dozen because again, all the prophecies were leading up to it, that this was about the time. And so a lot of these okay. so-called right. messiahs were coming out of the woodwork. Uh, and it is interesting. Again, this doesn't prove it by itself, but it is interesting. We don't really know anything about those other, again, quote unquote messiahs, but we do know quite a bit about our Lord. No, that's that's it's a good comparison. So these people who were quacks or or political political agitators, um, uh, yeah, no, they're they're gone, and and there's no no religion or or world changing movement uh, founded on their lives. Exactly. Yeah. So that last quote you you mentioned from from John chapter eight, um, this is the one that really I think set the set the Pharisees' teeth on edge, where they were. You know, our Lord is explicitly saying, this is who I am. And so they, they knew, or at least they knew the claims that our Lord was making that, that he was exactly. God. No, exactly. So let, let's say the, um, when, when our Lord is brought on trial to the, the high priest, they, they try to bring witnesses. They try to, you know, they try to prove that he's done something wrong or whatever. And, and they can't, I mean, they can't, the witnesses don't agree. And it's all a big farce. And, and, the high priest is embarrassed and whatever. And so as a last resort, he just asks uh, our Lord, so are you the son of God? Are you the son of the blessed God? And our Lord says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's why they were then able to claim the blasphemy and, and, and then to, to bring him to, to Pilate and say, you know, he's blasphemed and we have a law and if you, whatever, so he has to be put to death. So yeah, they, they tried. And it's, it's sort of, I don't know. It's, it's a way to show that our Lord died when he wanted to for the reason he wanted to. So he, he arranged things such that, or God arranged things such that they, they couldn't try to put him to death for some crazy story about this or about that. They, they couldn't pull that off. They tried, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and so finally they just had to ask him, are you God? And he says, yes. And so that's on record. Um, and it's also clear that that's why they killed him. So no, the, the Jews right. certainly, uh, they certainly knew that. Um, and, and, even and they earlier, attempted to, I was, I was just going to ask, they attempted to uh, kill him earlier, right? Yes, that's right. So yeah, so there's even, even before that moment when he makes this great public avowal officially in front of the Sanhedrin, which is a beautiful, a beautiful detail. You think about how God's plan works. You know, the, the, the leaders of the Jewish nation, the, the nation chosen by God to, 
to be the one that would provide the redeemer for the whole world. And these are the leaders of that nation. It would certainly have been their role to, to officially ask, are you he? And when he said yes, then they would then declare it to the people and the nation would, would get on board. I mean, that, that's beautiful that in a certain way, they had that opportunity to do what was their role. Um, but that's not mm-hmm. the only time they knew about that. So, so before, um, again, St. John, so chapter 10, for example, he'll say, you know, I and the Father are one. And the people take up stones. And, and our Lord says, well, I've done many good works. Why do you, for which one of these good works do you stone me? And they say, well, for a good work, we stone you not. But because you, being a man, claim to be God. So, no, they, they did know it even before then, which is why the high priest thought he had a chance of getting him to admit it, since he knew that our Lord was already claiming it. So this is, again, we're, we're looking at all of these things put together, the miracles, the prophecies, the, the claims that he's making. And, you know, it is, you know, as you're a Catholic, I'm a Catholic, you know, raised Catholic it's easy for us to go, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus was God. But to, it, we need to, when we're looking at these things apologetically, kind of divorce ourselves from what we know and say, it is actually really weird that <laughs> the whole concept that Absolutely. God would come and become a man, that is a bizarre concept, honestly. No, it's true. I mean, and, and I would say that's that's the kind of thing the saints meditate on for years, that that God did so love the world as to send his only begotten son. So the, the, the depths of the love of God and, and the wisdom of God um, to, to find a solution for man's redemption that would be able to pay the debt, um, that would show forth the goodness of God. Yeah. yeah, but and this is it. I mean, if you're a pagan, you don't believe that the gods love the human race that much. So you might believe that the you might believe that the gods are in some way sort of strangely human or whatever, because they had a sort of a limited idea about what a god was. But, but the pagan gods did not come on earth to, to save the world. And they certainly didn't come on earth to suffer uh, to, to save the world. So it, it is an amazing concept. It is. And, yeah. you know, it's by all means, we would like people to, to soberly reflect before they accept the truth of it. and. And that, that is what we do. Someone comes and they say, well, Father, I, I, I've discovered the Catholic faith and I, I see all the good through history the Catholic Church has done. You, know, you invented hospitals, you invented orphanages. You invented, it's like, yeah, we did. And, you know, and, and your beautiful architecture and your, your high art and all this. I want to be a Catholic. And I'm like, mm, slow down. Yes. Yeah. That's not why you become a Catholic. You, you need to look at our, at our religion and what we say happened. And you've got to see if you accept that. But not everyone does. No, so let's so let's look at a few of the objections and and talking about this honestly is some of my favorite part of apologetics and, and studying apologetics. Um, can you help me debunk the idea, Father, that our Lord Jesus Christ was maybe just the greatest lying fraud in the history of mankind, and that these books were just written by rabid followers? Right. Um, well, I, I think if our Lord was a fraud, he certainly was the greatest fraud in, in human history. That's uh, <laughs> impressive what, what he was able to uh, pull off. Um, 
and and I think I'd say as as a first step, we can we can go back historically and say, well, who who were the first people who made this claim? Because this this claim obviously has been made in modern times, but but it was in fact the enemies of Christianity in the first few centuries who first tried this this tack. So whether you're looking at the the Talmud, for example, uh, where the Jews are trying to explain who this man was, um, they they do admit the miracles. They do. Um, which is which is a point I think a lot of people don't know. If you look in the Talmud, um, so written by the Jews in those first few centuries after after Christ, our Lord is mentioned. He's not mentioned in very complimentary terms. They they certainly did not like him, um, but he's mentioned, and the miracles are mentioned, and they try to say that he's a fraud. But their idea of fraud is well, he was a sorcerer. He learned some sort of black magic or something like that. Because again, they can't. They can't deny the miracles. Um, so that's interesting. The, the pagans did the same thing. There's a, a pagan by the name of Celsus, um, who was a, a Platonist. And he's, he's an interesting man because he, he tried to do apologetics for paganism. And he, he really tried. And he, he, he tried to be, I would say, kind of serious about it. So he read the, the Gospels, which is a, an interesting proof that the Gospels were in existence at his time and they were accessible that this pagan apologist could find them and read them. And he, he did try to come up with some theory as to who Jesus Christ really was. And he was forced to fall back on it again and say, well, he was a, he was a fraud, but a fraud in the sense of a magician, because, you know, we can't deny that the miracles happened. There's too much evidence of that. So he was a magician. He wasn't God. He was, uh, he was, uh, yeah, somehow in league with the, he was a sorcerer uh, of some kind. So that, that, I think, is a little bit telling that the first people who tried to make the claim that our Lord was a fraud, they had to admit that the miracles happened. And so their idea of a fraud is a, is a magician, a sorcerer, or something like that. Um, now, the yeah, I, I think we can also point out that if our Lord was a fraud, if he's a, a liar and a cheat and a scoundrel and all that, he is exactly the opposite of everything historically written about him, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is quite quite telling, I think. So um, the Gospels uh, record our Lord as being not just a very good and virtuous man, but but the ideal man. Uh, so someone who was someone who is so I mean who outshines all the saints, even I would say because. You know, as a Catholic, of course, we, we like to think about the saints and admire their good qualities. But the saints are usually, I wouldn't say almost always notable for one or two virtues, you know, that they practiced in a heroic way. And so you have St. Francis of Assisi with his poverty or St. Vincent de Paul with his charity to the poor or whatever. And so they're held up, rightly so, as being this incredible virtuous person, but particularly in these ways. And you can't do that with our Lord. You, you, you can't say that, well, he was only heroic in this way or that way. He was extraordinary across the board. So, you know, everything is harmonized in our Lord. Everything that Christianity considers to be good and noble is harmonized in our Lord. So he's, he's sort of majestic. He has a sense of his dignity, but he's absolutely approachable, you know, by, by everyone from the children to the sinners. To the most public and despised of sinners, he's he's approachable. So, and he's, he has humility. 
you know, but he has courage. You know, he can stand up in the face of, of public opposition and say what needs to be said. Um, he's very just. He cares about the rights of God. He, he hates sin. He makes war on sin. And yet he's absolutely merciful. So, you know, he's so perfect, in fact, that it's not something I've mentioned yet, but, uh, but Father Paco did mention it in his, uh, in his podcast on miracles, that the concept of a moral miracle, um, so not a physical miracle, but a moral miracle where, you know, there's some person um, who exhibits a perfection um, or, or uh, yeah, a perfection or a sudden perfection, which, which you can't explain through the, the, law, the laws of normal human behavior and, and psychology. So our Lord is that person. And so if he's a scoundrel, then everything written about him is, is wrong, um, which if you're going to say the whole historical record is wrong, well, you have to justify that, I, I, I would right. say. Um, and, and anyways, I mean, uh, con men, and, and they don't usually provoke you know, the greatest philosophical, moral, and social reform in human history. Uh, that, that's that's sure. not what con men do. Is your point about all the other so-called messiahs, uh, we don't know anything uh, about this. They're lost. That's it. Yeah. So this and, and is another like, argument yeah. that I heard. Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say another argument I heard about, about the con man quote unquote theory is if he was, he likely would have recanted yeah. at some point, probably before he was crucified. You know, probably any other person, if you were running a con father and you were about ready to be crucified, the most horrible, unimaginable death, you'd go, hold on, wait, 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 just kidding. Right. Just kidding, guys. He didn't. That's right. No, that's right. No, a bit. I would say a bit like Judas, right? I mean, Judas isn't a con right. man, but he is someone motivated by selfish motives. And when the pressure came too high, he got out. Right. He got out of the movement. So, so I mean, in, in modern times, it's true. This this idea of, of the con man came back up. It's more of a, a late 1700s uh, uh, fraud theory, but it did not last long. Um, because it's, it's, it's not very convincing. And so the people who were trying to explain away our Lord, they, they quickly moved to, I would say, more seemingly sophisticated ways of doing it, because that's, that's pretty crude. Sure. Well, so, so to carry on to that point of someone wouldn't be willing to die uh, to carry out a con, someone would come back and say, well, you know who the type of person is who would die to carry yes. out something that's false? Yes. And that's someone who is a lunatic or insane or out of his mind. You know, you think of the the Jim Jones, the David Koresh yeah. Messiah types. They were willing to die for what they yes. believed and they were wrong. How isn't Christ the same? No, it's true. It, it, it does seem a little more um, plausible, superficially speaking anyway, at first glance, that, um, yeah, he could have just been a deluded fanatic. Uh, maybe even a well-intentioned deluded fanatic, but but yeah, no, it's interesting. It 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 doesn't stand up any more to scrutiny really than the other one, although superficially it might seem a bit better. Um, because again, the if you look at the historical record that we have of our Lord, it not only shows him to be good and virtuous, and therefore not a con man, but it shows him to be absolutely mentally balanced. There's nothing weird or unbalanced uh, about our Lord. So. Not only does he show this sort of moral perfection, but he, he has a, a mental perfection. So he's, he's always in complete control of himself. Um, he speaks with great dignity. 
He's extremely lucid in his argumentation. Um, the ability of him to respond to any kind of question, any kind of objection. Uh, he's, he's, in, he has a mental perfection, which is no less, I would say, extraordinary than, than his moral perfection. He's not precisely the sort of street corner, uh, apocalyptic preacher that you, you come across <laughs> in, in big cities, you know, with a piece of cardboard and, and, and dressed a little bit oddly. Um, he's, he's not like that. And, and I would also say, to put it um, maybe in a political way, he's not a one-issue guy, um, which right. these people tend to be. So that that street corner apocalypse preacher, or whatever, or whatever sort of deluded visionary kind of person, they they do latch on to one or two things, and and that's what they're trying to get across to the world, and and he's not. So he's you know again he's. He's a devout rabbi, etc. But he he tells the Jews they should pay their taxes, uh, which you know is that's not what you would expect from someone who was um, sort of a I don't know sort of had sort of gotten lost in his Jewish dreams or or whatever. Um, you know he's he's very pure himself and he's very demanding in his moral code, etc. But he's extremely compassionate to, to sinners, you know, so he's not sort of a puritanical maniac when it comes to sin or whatever. Um, he's not a, he's not a sort of social reformer as he's often depicted, at least not directly, obviously, um, a social reformer. So he, he loves the poor. He's very poor himself, but he doesn't despise the rich. He's, he's welcomed into their homes, um, et cetera. So he's not a one issue guy. He's not. Right. He's absolutely balanced, which is not something you would expect from someone who is who is a lunatic. That's it. That's it. So really, um, the, only, the only criticism yeah. they make about him not being balanced is is that he claimed to be God. Um, and so they say, well, okay, well, if he claimed to be God, he couldn't have been balanced. Well, you know, I would say it's, uh, and I, I, I remember using this in one of my classes, it's a bit like the, the, the miracle on 34th Street. Uh, if you remember that uh, that classic oh, yeah. this movie, so when uh, there's that scene in the courtroom where uh, the Chris Kringle's trial has just begun, and the the prosecutor asks him his name, he says Chris Kringle. He says, "Do you believe yourself to be Santa Claus?" And he says, "Yes." And the prosecutor says, "All right, the, the state rests. That's it. You you admitted, you know, what I wanted to prove." So and so the judge says, "Well, do you still want to mount a defense?" And the, uh, the defense attorney says, well, yes, I, I, I'm well aware of my, my client's opinions. And uh, that's the whole case. That's the whole case against him is that he, you know, he doesn't, he's not sane because he believes himself to be Santa Claus. And the judge says, well, it seems reasonable to me. And the defense attorney says, well, it would be if the clerk or the other prosecutor, the other lawyer, myself thought that we were Santa Claus. And the prosecutor says, well, anyone who thinks he's Santa Claus is not sane. <laughs> and the friend says, well, not necessarily. If he is who he claims to be, then he's sane. So, yeah. you know, if, if you and I walked down the street and said we were gone, I think that's a statement that calls for a certain healthy skepticism. And um, <laughs> if someone said, show me your credentials, and I couldn't raise anyone from the dead, well, yes, I'm a con man or a lunatic. But if I do raise someone from the dead, then I think you got to take that claim kind of seriously. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Everything that we've been talking about here in the last hour 20 
all leads up to this. And that his statement by itself of saying that he's God doesn't make him a lunatic. Right. Not if he can prove it. Right. And, um, and it's interesting, too, it's, not, good. it's not the first claim he makes. I mean, again, he, he starts off saying, I'm a preacher sent by God. He, he proves that, first of all. He gives, he prepares the ground, you know, for, for his more striking revelations, like the Eucharist, for example. He prepares the ground for that. He, he knows that these are going to be difficult for people to accept. So he doesn't just sort of step off his front door one morning and say, I'm God. He, he right. leads up to it, prepares the mind, establishes his credentials. And, uh, and there you have it. Yeah. Last objection I'd like to chat with you about, Father. And this is something I heard in college all the time when I was first faced with people who were, you know, skeptics, agnostics, whatever. Um, and they would say, you know, Bible, great book, full of a lot of great moral truths. It's a good way to live your life. Jesus Christ, good man, yeah. can't believe that he's God. Um, yeah. Something must have been lost in translation, literally, figuratively, <laughs> in the scriptures, where this man who was very good, very moral, had a lot of great teachings, very wise. You know, I, I would hear that all the time. Very wise man. Absolutely. But everything, everything in here was just totally exaggerated. Um, what do you say to that, Father? So this, in fact, Andrew, this, this, um, not that I'm volunteering because I'm not, but this would in fact be a whole podcast on its own. Just, just this objection because you just volunteered. No, you I realize that's no, how this works. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is a really interesting study. The, these different theories that have emerged. So of course, the diff, the, what you've explained, that sort of perspective, that's not just the perspective of scholars. That, that's, perspective of plenty of sort of everyday people on the street who don't really want to invest the time and the effort into to really taking religion seriously and trying to sort out exactly what's what. But there are plenty of scholars and, and very intelligent people who have tried to go down this path to say, well, look, um, they have a philosophical bias against miracles against God, I guess they're being a God, or at least they're being an incarnate God or whatever. And so for them, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he's a, he's a riddle. And, and I'm going to try to solve this riddle to find out, you know, who he really was. And what's fascinating is that you have these intelligent people. Um, again, they unfortunately have this bias, but nevertheless, they, they go into this question and, and they develop a theory. So they, they think, okay, well, Jesus of Nazareth, what kind of thinker or reformer exactly was he and they develop a theory about that and then once they have a theory about that then they have to develop a, a process or a theory for sifting the gospels and taking out what doesn't fit with their theory because they'll say well look my theory is the correct one and therefore whatever is not in align with my theory was what was added later what was lost in the translation was my theory and everything else that is against my theory, you know, that's the exaggerated, that's the historically unreliable, that's what we need to purge in order to get back to the real historical Jesus. So they have a system for sifting and sorting through the Gospels and, 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 and uh, filtering, I guess, out what doesn't correspond to what they think to be the real theory. Um, and then they'll have a theory about, well, how did the distortion happen? Because for them, it did happen. These other bits and pieces of the Gospels were added. These other uh, 
exaggerated claims about Christ. They, they came into general circulation. How did that happen? So they, they do that. Who was he? And once they think they've sorted that out, then they've got to sort out the Gospels and, and, and sort of filter the text. And then they have to come up with a theory on how did the text end up being that? How did this general misunderstanding occur in the first place? And there's, it's, it's fascinating. So beginning in the late 1700s, but especially in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, these theories were multiplying. And some of them, they're interesting. They're interesting. Um, and they are based on some evidence because, of course, there's a lot in the Gospels, right? Our Lord is a very complete person. He's, he, he teaches moral doctrine. He teaches doctrines about the church, about human nature, about human morality. He lives in a certain circumstance, and so he's, he's seen as a rabbi. And so you can, you can come at it from all these different angles, and you can say, well, I, I think this angle is the only true one, and they build a system. But then what happens is, 10 years later, 20 years later, another scholar comes along and says, now, wait a second, um, you've, you've left something out. There's, there's these other aspects, there's these other facts that have to be accounted for, and your theory does not account for them. And in fact, it runs up against these other facts. So in fact, I have this theory. And again, it can be very interesting. And they can do a very good job of pointing out the truth, some of the truth, I would say. Um, and then 10 years later, someone comes along and says, oh, but you left something out. And so for the Catholic apologist, in many respects, these, these thinkers have done our work for us. They, yeah. they, they've done a very good job of pointing out why the other person's errors are, are errors. Um, and, and it's really interesting. So there's, um, I would say to sort of summarize a little bit here. So we, we don't, we can't okay. go into all this and I'm not volunteering to go into all of this, but <laughs> I think just to, to, to start off and say the approach that these scholars take, there, there is uh, an initial problem, which is common to all of them. And, and that is that they, they start from the philosophical bias. So they, they don't just let the historical facts speak for themselves, right? So the, the New Testament gives evidence for the man Jesus, but it also gives evidence for the God Jesus. And, and the evidence for the God Jesus is at least as abundant as the evidence for the man Jesus. So um, the same documents attest to both. And so if you're going to go through, the, if you're going to embark on this process, you're really embarking on it from a philosophical bias and, and you can't you can't accept the man Jesus and discard the God Jesus just because it doesn't square with your philosophy. So the whole approach is ideological and arbitrary, right? And and as I said at the very beginning, this is firstly a historical question. So what happened? Um, who was this person? What did he say? What did he do? It's a historical question, and they approach it from an ideological and philosophical bias. So it, it doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work. And even even someone like, you know, those of us who are familiar with St. Pius X and his work against modernism, we may have heard of this man, Loisy, who is this great mm -hmm. modernist that St. Pius X and him. Loisy was, was one of these people who came up with their theories. But he was very honest. And he said, if there is a greater interest in the, the, the Christological problem in modern scholarship, it's not because we have more facts, you know, like, 
historical facts have come to the surface and now they've improved our understanding. And so we have to reevaluate. It's not that. It's not because any more historical facts have, have emerged. It's just because of a philosophical evolution. People right. have different philosophies. And so they decide they're going to reinvent Jesus, basically. Um, so he was, he was honest about that. So that's the first problem. This whole approach is ideological and arbitrary. Um, but the second problem is, and it flows from the first one, is that history is a unified story. This is what really happened. Because this happened, this happened, because this was said, this was understood, and this was acted upon, and et cetera. So you know, our Lord is, is, a, is an amazing person, for sure. And his message is amazing, and his actions are amazing, but, but they are logical and coherent. Um, and as soon as you try to sort through the gospel accounts, because you have a pet theory about who the real Jesus was, um, the, the gospel narrative just falls apart. And it doesn't fit anymore as well into the historical circumstances um, of, of the day. So our Lord is extraordinary, but he's consistent and his message is, is unified. So um, as soon as you try to take certain parts of that historical picture out of the picture, historical portrait out of the picture, the picture doesn't make any sense anymore. You're going to be left with just a bunch of contradictions with a bunch of things that just aren't going to make any sense. And like you said, at, at kind of at the top of this part of the discussion, yeah. it's going to be kind of an apologetical circular firing squad. You're going to have another scholar from an opposite point of view who's going to be That's attacking right. your, and you're going to be kind of left with, well, then if, then, ev then eventually none of this is true. And we yeah. know that that's not the case. Some of it has to be true. It makes more sense to accept all of it, frankly. Right. Exactly. So the, um, so we mentioned before the Lord of the Rings illustration, if you take the miracles out, the story doesn't make sense anymore. But that was only one example. You know, if you take out some of our Lord's teachings, you know, the, the story doesn't make sense anymore. If you take out some of his actions, it doesn't make sense anymore. It's not just the miracles. It's also the other aspects of the gospel story, his, his words and his, and his actions. So just as an example, so if you're a reader of uh, radio replies and, and some of those sort of mid-20th mid century Catholic apologetics books, you'll hear uh, the name Harnack a lot. So Harnack oh, yeah. is this liberal, liberal Protestant uh, scholar, and he has all kinds of objections. And, and you'll see it all the time in radio replies or, or whatever that his objections are being refuted. But Harnack is one of these people who has his, his theory about who the real Jesus was. And, and his theory was basically, well, here you had a man who was very aware of the fatherhood of God and was aware that God was really trying to reveal his, his fatherhood for the human race. He was trying to reveal that fatherhood to, to man. And so over time, meditating on this, our Lord's conscious, uh, he, he sort of became conscious that in a certain way, he was chosen to, to make this, to cooperate in this revelation that God was trying to make. And so he was going to be sort of the apostle of the fatherhood of God, which means in some mysterious way, he must be son of God because it's his message to talk about the father of God and, and all of that. that that's, that's Harnack's theory about who Jesus really was. And so everything that doesn't square with that theory, Harnack just 
because it's that that's what have been must have been added um, afterwards. So not just the miracles, but a large part of our Lord's doctrinal teaching, which doesn't focus so much on those areas for him that needed to go. And then Lawazi, who we just mentioned, so Lawazi comes along and says, mm, Arnak, that that's that's not a very good approach because basically you're taking your own ideas uh, and your own sort of 19th century ideas about what Christianity should be, and you're projecting it onto a first century Jew, which mm-hmm. is not very sensible. So you can't pretend that a first century Drew is a, is a 19th century Protestant minister. That's, that's not realistic. So our Lord must have been a child of his time. And so Lawazi says you have to study his time if you're going to figure out, you know, what was, the, what was in the air at the time that our Lord was living um, in order to understand what kind of man he was. And so Lawazi, he studies in particular um, with, a, with a sort of distorted emphasis, but Lawazi studies the, the Jewish apocrypha um, of the time. And so those writings are very much apocalyptic in, in their tone. And so Lawazi concludes that the atmosphere, the air of, of first century Palestine is sort of charged, which this uh, apocalyptic uh, vision of things where the civilization, the Gentiles has been corrupted and uh, there's going to be, it's going to be exterminated. There's going to be this new era of peace that's ushered in. And this era of peace is called the kingdom of God and, and whatever. And so Jesus was in fact, for Lawazi, He's not a religious teacher so much as he is an apocalyptic uh, zealot, you know. So this idea that he's going to, you know, found a church, some sort of permanent, you know, religious society. Uh, no, of course not, because he thought the world was about to end, right? I mean, they, or or at least the there was going to be some kind of cataclysm, and the the world was going to enter into a new phase or whatever. So no liturgical rites are being instituted by Christ, no definitive moral code, no religious society. So Lawazi takes all those things out. And so Lawazi kept what Harnack discarded and, and vice versa. And then after Lawazi, uh, another group of scholars comes along and they're, they have sort of this, and there's more than one flavor of them, but basically they're calling them the syncretists. Um, and they, they're pointing out that Lawazi's got some explaining to do because if if Christianity is really just the the fruit of a of a feverish Jewish apostolic zealot, then how does Lawazi explain that it had such a universal appeal, um, especially outside the Jewish world? You know that the Gentiles convert to this new religion. The Gentiles couldn't care less about some sort of Jewish apocalypse, and they certainly couldn't have cared less about, you know, some sort of uh, Gentile corruption that needed to be done away with or whatever. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense that, that such, a, such a system that was universally appealing to people came from a, a, an apocalyptic uh, zealot. So um, the syncretists, they do find some interesting things which are true, like the fact that the Gospels... This is just interesting from our own sort of Protestant apologetical perspective that the syncretists will say, you know, the the four Gospels, they seem to come from a a common oral tradition. 
Um, they're not written completely independently, but they're, 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 they seem to, which is absolutely true, uh, that there is a common oral tradition because the apostles are preaching for decades uh, before the, the New Testament is written, at least before much of the New Testament is written. So they, they see some interesting things which are true, which is why it's interesting to look at what they say. But they're also very good at pointing out why Harnack and Lawazi, they're not right. It doesn't work. Right. So each of these three schools, and, and like you said, there's plenty other ones that we yeah. can look at, but each of these three schools, the, the main problem is they're looking at this with their own philosophical bias. They're, they're, they're projecting, you know, it, it's kind of like looking at history with, with our own, you know, 21st century lens. Well, yeah, we're going to think things are kind of weird looking at it from history. Well, we're looking at it with our own bias of our own current times. That's what they're doing, except with philosophy. They're, they're trying to understand things from the scriptures with a preconceived notion that just isn't going to match. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, so I didn't, I didn't talk about anybody who comes after the syncretists, but I mean, the syncretists have a lot of explaining to do themselves. If they're going to try to understand why, you know, saying, well, the, the Christianity was so universally accepted because, because their theory is that precisely it accommodated itself. That's why they call it syncretism. It accommodated itself to everyone. Um, and, and, that's why it was so appealing. Well, um, in fact, Christianity is one of the most, probably the most doctrinally exclusive religion of the ancient world. So it, it, it wasn't trying to accommodate itself to anybody. Uh, and it was extremely rigid on even what would have considered to be small theological details to, to a pagan or whatever. So if you're trying to appeal to the, the ancient world, um, preaching that that God is a crucified Jew um, isn't going to get you very far. If you're if you're trying to right. fit in with the with the ancient pagan world, that's not a way to go about it. And insisting on chastity is not a way to go about it. Um, so yeah, even, so I didn't go on, but the, the syncretists themselves they they look at it from a point of view, but that doesn't square with history either. It doesn't it doesn't make sense from a historical point of view either. So no, it's it's interesting as you say. It's like they're mutual firing squads. You know, it's. Uh, Right. And again, looking at the entire thing of what we've been looking at over the last hour and a half or so, it's, it's, they're, they're trying to strip away the, the miraculous parts when the miraculous parts are, if not definitively provable in and of themselves, they are at least beyond reasonable doubt, historical events. And, and with, without them, here's, here's, here's the bottom line, really, if you want to say another point that's common to all of these alternative, all of these objections, I mean, really all of these objections, not just the one where discussing here this third one but if there are no miracles right if, if there's nothing extraordinarily supernatural going on here then you're you're stuck with this idea that well you have these rigid monotheists you know saint paul and, and the early christian converts and these rigid monotheists uh, elevate to divine status a man who had just died recently and who many of them knew personally, you know, and try to figure that out historically, you know, it, that's a historical right. anomaly that can't be explained. If you're going to take out the miraculous, then it is historically absurd, no matter how you, whatever, whatever theory you have about Jesus or how are you to choose to edit the gospels at the end of the day, no alternative theory that leaves the supernatural and miraculous out of the picture 
can explain why a bunch of rigid monotheists suddenly took a carpenter from Galilee and decided he was God. Right. It's just not going to make sense. Um, the other thing that's, that's interesting, and maybe this is a little bit off topic, but looking at just the Bible story itself and the fact that there are, especially we, we've talked about the old Testament before and, and there may be some troublesome quote unquote passages in it or seeming contradictions in the old Testament, but the new Testament is consistent. And the things that, you know, the prophecies of our Lord leading up to the actual events that take place. I mean, whoever wrote that, if it was just a person who wrote it, the greatest writer in the history of civilization, there is no other book that comes close to it. Not even JK Rowling. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but just that by itself, how do you explain the fact that, oh yeah, well this, this just developed over time. The Bible just developed over time and it was just added to, well, there would be contradictions in it. There's no way. No, it's true. It's true. And I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't take the historical picture as a whole, just as it is, then, then you can't make sense of it at the end of the day. Right. Right. Father, this has been fascinating. And those, go ahead. Sorry. I was, I was just going to say, if you, if you're brought to the last extremity, okay, as some of them are about these things where they say, well, you sort of hinted at it when you said, well, this isn't true. This isn't true. I mean, that system is wrong. So maybe, maybe none of it's true. Well, then, then you're, you fall back on another absurdity, which is that, you know, Jesus Christ, the most historically significant person in history was not historical. Mm -hmm. So you're, 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 you're <laughs> take your choice of absurdities is what you're eventually reduced to. Yeah, absolutely. Father, this has been great. This has been fascinating. Um, one of my favorite episodes so far, and I'm not playing favorites, but this has been really cool. Um, those who are listening will note that we didn't talk about the greatest miracle of all time because we're devoting an entire episode just to the resurrection, sure, sure. Um, the death and the resurrection of our Lord. That even being left aside, all this other stuff is still fairly a watertight case, but we're going to see even more next time uh, with, I think, with Father Franks. But Father Thiemann, thank you so much. This has been excellent. My pleasure, Andrew. My pleasure. And again, you're district superior now, so thanks for taking the time. I know you're very, very busy, so no worries. really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you. <laughs>